Мамой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. For a few years after 2016, it seemed that Vladimir Putin was everywhere in America. And not just on the news, but on all sorts of items, from stickers to t-shirts to fiction and knickknacks. His steely-eyed face served as a political window into the American psyche. Much of this material culture focused on the socially taboo, the satirical, scatological, even risque, as it paired Putin with a host of American political figures, Donald Trump first and foremost. So what does Putin kitsch mean in America? What do Americans see in it? Why do they make it, buy it, and collect it? And how does it fit in within the larger context of media, technology, consumerism, and politics? Here's Alison Rowley with the story. Alison Rowley is a professor of Russian history at Concordia University. She's the author of Open Letters, Russian Popular Culture and the Picture Postcard, 1880-1922. Her most recent book is Putin Kitsch in America, published by McGill Queen's University Press. Here's Alison Rowley. So, you know, I, um, I've been doing this series, uh, a series of, of interviews on the United States and Russia, and I, I can't remember how I found your book. I think maybe somebody told me about it, but when I saw this book of yours, Putin Kitchen America, I just, I just had to talk to you, include you in this series because it's such a, you know, something that, that we see so much of uh, on the internet and also in, you know, kitsch gift shops, uh, all of this stuff about Putin that I just had to talk to you about this book. So uh, just to start, just please introduce yourself. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to speak to you about this. Um, I think it's a real thrill when you get to talk about things that you find both cool and and really unusual. And, and the fact that anyone takes interest in, in your research, well, you know, hey, why would you turn on an opportunity to talk about that? Um, anyway, my name is, is Alison Rowley, and I'm a professor of Russian history in the Department of History at Concordia University in Montreal. And uh, I don't normally work on quite this contemporary um, stuff. I've always worked with visual and material culture, but working with someone who was alive as a subject was a stretch for me. So in some ways, it was a very interesting journey, and I'm happy to share some of that with your listeners. Yeah, so how did you, like, what inspired you to to write this book about Putin Kitsch in America? Because, you know, any of us who've been to Russia has seen Putin Kitsch. I mean, I've seen Putin Kitsch in Israel um, and, you know, and it's really kind of cropped up as a, a strange industry in America. So what, what compelled you to, to look at it seriously and intellectually? 
The short answer is a free trip. Um, I had a friend who, coming up to the anniversary of the, the 100th anniversary of the October Revolution in the Soviet Union, was hosting um, an invite-only conference. And so she wanted to bring a number of scholars in. We would have this lovely three-day conference, all expenses paid. And at the end of it, we were all supposed to submit our papers for an edited volume. And she said to me, she sent me an email. She said, I need something on material culture. I have nothing. Please tell me you can do this. And I, I hummed and hawed. And I said, well, I got a little bit of time. I have 18 months. And, and I said, sure, I can compare the cult of Lenin with the cult of Putin. And I'd, I'd done a little bit of work on the cult of Lenin before. So I thought, oh, I have a solid base in that part of it. And how hard can it be to work on Putin? And, and the thought of getting a free trip to Canada's West Coast, where the weather was going to be much better than where I live, um, was not a hardship. So I said yes, and, and I began to sort of look into what kind of Putin materials were out there. I'm fortunate in one sense, because for my entire career, this is what I've done. I've, I had children at the wrong time. And what I mean by that is, right after I finished my dissertation, I had two kids in two years, and it made archival travel quite difficult. So instead, I always found other ways to find sources and topics. And so very early on, you know, late 1990s, when eBay was really new and used to literally send money in the mail, I was already building archives that I wanted to work with. So my Putin collection is really the third archive that I've built over the course of, of the last quarter century. And so I know where to look. I knew exactly where to look. I, the minute I knew I was going to do this, I just sort of went right to eBay and then I went to some other um, sites where you can find interesting things. And it was like a, a eureka moment. There was so much stuff. It happened that I had just started to look at these items um, within only about six to eight weeks after Donald Trump announced that he wanted to run for the presidency of the United States. And so I just suddenly had this wealth of information. I mean, in very public, public places like Amazon.com, etc. I mean, you didn't have to go very far to find what you were looking for. And as I worked on it, I started to buy sources and, and acquire materials and try to ponder the themes I was seeing. I realized I had two projects. I had the one that my friend wanted for her conference, you know, comparing Lenin and Putin. And then I had this weird Trump-Putin stuff that I didn't really know what to do with yet. And eventually that took over. Um, and long before I ever got to the conference, I had actually written an article about the Trump-Putin slash that came out, I think it was 2017 in, in um, Porn Studies. It was either that or in 2018. And at that point, I thought, well, I'm done. You know, I'm going to have my conference paper and I've written my article. And now I'm going to go back and write the book that I have under contract all about dead people. And I'm going to slow down and take lots of time. I didn't realize that people had paid attention. So while actually while I was at that conference, I got a message from a publisher in the United States. And he said, you know, are you going up to the ACES conference? That, For people who don't know, that's the biggest conference in North America about Slavic studies every year. And he asked, are you going to be there? And if you are, would you talk to me about doing a book based on that article that's just come out? And I went, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And a friend who was sitting with me that day at breakfast, she goes, just take the meeting. Take the meeting. Like, what do you lose? And I said, yeah, but I'm done, I'm done. She goes, just take the meeting. So I took the meeting. But what was interesting, I thought, well, how would I reconceptualize what I've been working on and, and think of it as chapters and what would I do to expand on the project? I got out some ginormous post-it notes 
that I tend to carry. And I started sort of flowcharting ideas on how I would see different chapters and what I might call them and this kind of thing. And I was doing that on the shuttle bus to the airport. And literally by the time I got on my flight home from that conference, I knew I wasn't just taking that meeting. I was writing this book. And by the time I got to the next conference to have that meeting with a potential publisher, I actually had three publishers fighting over this project. And um, I picked the one I was most comfortable with. I worked with an editor I've worked with before who's fantastic. And I was crazy. I mean, he, he said to me, can you give me this book in a year? And I, with full bravado, said, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. Um, scholarly books never take a year. They, I mean, people always take forever. And then later on, he, as I started writing, he actually came back and said, like, could I have it earlier? So I wound up writing the entire manuscript in eight months. And, and that's how it came out so quickly. So, you know, one of the things, I mean, like I said, you know, I, you go to Russia and any kind, any tourist, whatever, Matroshka, whatever stuff, you can see various things that have Putin kitsch, you know, along, along with Lenin kitsch and all of this stuff. It's, it's a pretty common thing when you go to Russia. And like I said, you know, I've seen it in Israel as well, um, you know, Putin t-shirts. But, you know, that makes sense in Israel too, because there's a large Russian diaspora. Um, but why, why Putin in America? Like, why do you think that he, his kitsch is such a thing? I think he's a great symbol who at the core is also hollow. Um, if what I, what I'm trying to get at here is you don't really have to know anything about him. And in fact, a lot of the people who produce this know very little about his life story or his particular policies or any of this stuff. But he fits this sort of model they have. I always imagine, you know, like Dwayne Johnson, um, who's The Rock, in any of the kind of movies he makes with The Fast and the Furious. Or you go to those sort of action heroes, or the way in which the, the um, superhero movies from Marvel have people who are almost caricatures of themselves. And I think there's something that's attractive about that. And because you can kind of put anything on him. So the first veins of Putin Kitsch didn't criticize um, the Republican candidate when they came out. They, the first vein of, of Kitsch actually came out during the election cycles when Obama was running. And, and it was anti-Obama materials where people on the right were arguing Obama wasn't masculine enough. And so suddenly you had this man you could hold up as an ideal president. And the timing is so important here because Putin himself does something really interesting in 2006-2007. Russia's position at home changed quite dramatically. Um, for readers who may not know this, for listeners who may not know this, not readers, the Russians, for instance, managed to pay back all of their foreign debt. Um, the country was in a much better position economically. Putin had just won you know, he, he was firmly ensconced in his second term. And so he was able to reinvent himself. And, and so he underwent this image transformation. And all of a sudden, the internet is flooded with photos that he must have authorized the release of. Like, he does not micromanage his, his social media campaign most of the time. But you can't say that he would allow photos of a vacation to appear without approving that. And so he just transformed his image at a moment when he wanted the country to be more aggressive on the international stage. So this is moment is 2002, 2007. And what's so crucial about that is that's the American election campaign that led to the Obama presidency of 2008. And so people finally found, well, if you didn't like Obama and you thought he was this um, sort of softer version 
of, of masculinity. Who were you going to compare him to? Who were you going to say was the ultimate threat because Obama wasn't out there saber rattling? Well, you had this great figure, right? You had a guy who was happy to take his shirt off and ride around on horses and um, and give you sound bites that when they're they're translated sound a little bit like Tony Soprano. Um, you know, so he was perfect for that. And and then it just grew. You know, I I in, in this, these conversations I've been having about the United States and Russia and the relationships between them, um, one of the things that I've kind of theories I've been playing with is the idea of a nostalgia for a worthy enemy. And I don't know what you think of if this, but it seems that the that Putin's image as this hypermasculine guy fulfills that that nostalgia that was lost with the Cold War of a worthy, you know, a worthy enemy for the nation. I don't know if you have it, any comments. It does. I, I just, what came into my mind as you were saying that that was the Rambo film where he fought against Dolph Lundgren, but Dolph Lundgren was meant to be Russian. And, um, you know, that sort of contest of masculinity between hyper buffed up American hero and hyper buffed up Soviet hero. Um, I think there is an element of that. And I think that I often see it in the response boards. So when I look at um, people who buy kitsch, sometimes post comments of when they get their item and, and they they talk about what they like about it and things like that. Or sometimes even the sellers or people who make it will put little snippets about who they are in their details about their um, particular storefront. And you often see people who are making this have a real grudging respect for him. You might not like his policies, but somehow they sort of go, yeah, he's familiar. And, and we can, it's like a know your enemy moment. And there is this sense that at least if it's Russia, we understand the enemy. I think that, that a lot of Americans are quite puzzled by newer enemies. Like cyber threats are harder to wrap your brain around. Um, I think there's a little bit of confusion too sometimes about China and and North Korea. I mean, again, um, maybe there's an, an, an ethnic element to that. I'm not sure. But certainly there's a linguistic element where it's much harder, right? I mean, here what you have is it's very easy to have a sort of Russian villain who speaks English but with a bad Russian accent. And that plays well culturally because we're used to that that was the cold war stuff that we have all grown up with and that even younger people who of course don't remember the cold war quite as as fondly as i do um they too have seen these kind of arch russian villains through the james bond movies in the 2000s and 2010s you know i also think that it, it actually is very imbe in, embedded and intertwined with race uh because it's a worthy white and a worthy white enemy, and and that is to say that Russians are marginally white, right? They're 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 almost white, but not quite. <laughs> um, well, and here's the other thing: a lot of those Putin shirtless images, he's also wearing a cross. Yeah, that's interesting too. So you have a Christian image, and I think that that plays, you know, Putin's attraction to say people on the conservative right end of the political spectrum in the United States, they are also often Christian and far more um, emboldened by their Christianity than people on the left. And so I think that that idea that, hey, here's a guy who's not afraid to show his faith, but but he's also, he is a, a white sort of enemy that's very recognizable. I think there's a feeling we can understand him in a way that maybe they don't understand imagined enemies from cultures that are so disparate 
that they, they just sort of don't even understand, like, what are the references this person is making through the elements in the images that are being re released? I think with Putin, there's an understandability, right? Like, you see the cross, you know he's Christian. There you go. Um, whereas, whereas other enemies, it can be problematic. So um, one of the things you, in, in the opening of the book, uh, you talk about that... Um this kitsch and Putin kitsch and Putin is just is not the only uh, manifestation of this type of political and satirical kitsch. Um, it, it comes within a larger context and in, in changes in media, changes in political engagement. So talk about how this larger context that this Putin kitsch and, and other political satirical kitsch sits in. That's a really great question because one of the things I've spent this semester doing, I'm actually teaching the book. It wasn't intended, but we've had to change some things for remote teaching. And that meant one of my seminars changed topics. And one of the questions I keep asking my students is what can historians contribute to discussions about contemporary politics? And I think what we bring is that longer perspective, right? So I don't look at Putin Kitchen and go, oh my God, there's something totally brand new and shiny to go look at. To me, it's part of a longer process, and there's this evolution in media. And it's almost as if you have a, a number of things coming together. Going back into the 1980s, where, again, technologies that, that younger people may not even be familiar with, the idea of the handheld video recorder, where um, people in the news media now could actually record people and they chased after people. Or another really key moment was the development of CNN. And I've argued in my book that here you suddenly had 24-hour news channels. Well, that meant they actually had to find things to say for 24 hours. And as a result, the media landscape changed. And, and on top of that, we have this sort of growing celebrification where politicians began to appear on late-night talk shows. You had the rise of all kinds of humorous programs in the United States, again, that tapped into politics. So a widening of what kind of programming discussed politics. And then on top of that, you have these sort of very new ways of celebrating the presidency and, and what does this mean for elections. So it kind of all comes together long before they invent print-on-demand services. That's, that's quite new. But this changing landscape where you have CNN and, of course, now Fox News and, and every one of these networks has their own 24-hour news channel, they've got to do something. And what they found as they fought for ratings was that scandals was the key. More and more scandals. It, there's always a new scandal. And as one scandal dies down, they replace it with some other scandal. And you lead with outrage, right? The, the, to the tone is different in the news. And so this kind of fits perfectly with what we're talking about. Having a hyper-masculine figure in, in the politics lends itself to that kind of language, right? Because you can say, oh, Putin is acting tough today, or Putin slams this person. You don't have to talk about him in measured tones, and so that was the backdrop going back to the 80s and 1990s. And then on top of that, then you suddenly have this switch where in the 2000s, the internet arrived. Politicians didn't catch on. I mean, the first politicians were very puzzled by the internet. They didn't understand the power of YouTube. They didn't understand um, email and sharing of code. One of the most important books I read when I was doing research for this was by Joe Trippi who was the campaign manager for Howard Dean. And one of the things that made him interesting is he not only had an advertising background, but he also had a background in computing. So he was one of the first people to understand how you could use social media to bring people together. 
And in this case, it was plan rallies for Howard Dean and raise money for Howard Dean. And he found if you made it interactive, like you encouraged the people who supported you to better the products you were making, it created a sense of community. So he described things like, oh, we, we had, you know, early version of like a website and it wasn't very attractive. So one of the people um, who supported Howard over in this particular state sent us some computer code to make that better. And he, Trippy got it. And he kind of launched a revolution. Dean himself didn't understand. Dean was like, why am I making all these recordings that are going out on the internet? And finally, Trippy said to him, do you have any idea how much money we're bringing in? And how many people are now coming to your events? And it really moved Dean to um, from a sort of lower ranking potential candidate to a serious contender for the Democratic nomination for president. And that changed people's minds over what they could do. Yeah, and let me let me interject here because the other thing, the other trend that I I can I see connected to this is the the with all of this affective, you know, media uh, political engagement is that as as the country, the United States, has become more politically polarized, po- politics is is there's a there's a identity performative with it, and you certainly, I mean, you've already even alluded to this where you're you've mentioned how certain people on across on the American political spectrum relate to this Putin kitsch. Right, so in in a way, the consumption of the kitsch is also an expression of one's political identity. Oh, absolutely. Um, I just was looking for. I'm doing a new project for um, an edited collection, and I'm actually looking at toilet humor and the 2020 election cycle, and. The things that you could do this time around, the print-on-demand services, it wasn't just you could have campaign buttons made. You could make your own lawn signs, right? And so you could take some of the most vicious memes you could imagine and turn them into lawn signs. I mean, can you think of a better way of declaring your opinions um, about the other candidate than to put up some of this stuff? And I mean, the, the kinds of things I have at home, I mean, I put them in a box. Nobody necessarily has to see this. Um, but I think in that context, this was people absolutely looking for a common community. And if they felt alienated, going on here, buying one of these things, sharing it with a friend, um, talking to somebody who saw you have it, uh, it created a sense of belonging. I'm going to give you an example that has nothing to do with Putin and is a little um, risque, shall we say. You can buy these, well, you could up until a couple of weeks ago, I don't know, after the election. But you could buy doggy do bags, where you're supposed to use them to scoop in cities, and you could have them imprinted with the faces of politicians you don't like. And I was reading through the comments, because I was looking at the ones that were covered in Trump, and some of them came with a handy side pack of Mike Pence, but anyway... And I was reading what people had posted, you know, who had bought them. And people were like, yeah, I used these on the at the park on Saturday. And you should have seen, like, two people came up to me and said, oh, my God, those are great. And and don't you hate him, too? And, and they felt somehow they were creating community in those moments. And I found that really interesting. Like, I, I still can't get over the power with which these really awful and often poor quality items do have a power to bring people together often by laughing or by sharing or, or something like that. And, and so, yeah, I think it gives you a chance to perform politics in unusual ways. I think it's less demanding. You know, this is something that I was posting about today with a student, and she pointed out that political humor doesn't ask a lot. There's like a really low bar to entry. 
into the discussion. You don't have to have a PhD to be able to voice your opinion in that context. You can just walk around or have a controversial lawn sign and suddenly your neighbors may talk to you more. Or, you know, the guy at the post office, when you pick up your package, who asks like, well, what did you buy this time? And you say, well, I bought this this T-shirt. And then he tells you about, well, I have a T-shirt with Kim Jong-un on it. Actually, that is a real story. Um, my The post office guy in our local town did stop to talk to me about his Kim Jong-un T-shirt the other day. <laughs> And, and so I wind up having, I think, and, and other people do, amazing conversations with people I wouldn't ordinarily talk about politics with and people who might be normally turned off by academics or media experts who they think are, are so much smarter than they are. You know, we, we get a chance to talk to a wider public this way. It's it's hard because I have comments and but I want to have I want to ask questions too, and because c- I could I have all sorts of thoughts. But I'll just ask this: you know, and not only in the in the changing um, of the media scape and the engagement with politics, but you do have a, a change in capitalism, and and by this I mean what what one of the things that really fascinates me about the production of this Putin kitsch is it doesn't come from you know, major corporations. These are small entrepreneurs who are making this kind of do-it-yourself stuff. Uh, you have this print-on-demand. You have this self-publishing. Now, granted, all of these are being funneled through major corporations in terms of their sale, but the the production of them is a really small-time operation with as individuals. Um, and then, of course, we, we can't uh, put aside the question of the market in the sense that there is a market for the people want this type of stuff. So can you talk a bit about the, the, the how crucial this change and this issue of production is and consumption? I love it. I think of it as cottage industry. And, um, you know, earlier in the winter before we went into lockdown, I was actually asked to talk to a sort of business school about this, about the model, the business economic model of what's going on. And I think it's fascinating because you have cottage production, but like you said, it's being funneled through these massive websites. And the most important thing to look at is if you look at the Alexa rankings, which is where they track internet um, user traffic. And I took Amazon.com, which of course makes a lot of sense. But here's one of the shocking things. Amazon.com is one of the top 10 websites in Canada, even though we have Amazon.ca, which outranks it, but Amazon.com is still there. So people are buying from both sites. And so you start looking at these print-on-demand sites, you know, Cafe Press and Etsy and all of these places, eBay. And, you know, it's very common to find them all in the top 100 websites in the world. So it opens up possibilities for people who otherwise, I think, would feel frozen out of the political landscape. And and people find it liberating because not everyone wants to wear a mass-produced T-shirt that someone else has picked your political message. I think one of the things they love about this is the fact you can tailor it. You know, some of the, the designs on Etsy, the ones that really speak to me, just have the picture. You write your own caption. You know, imagine how powerful that is. When you sit there and you think, I'm going to, you know, buy a Putin thong for my friend for their birthday as a joke. And you could, for instance, say like, hey, d- pick somebody's name. Um, you could write, you know, whatever you want on and reference your friend in that or, or whatever you wanted to say in that moment. And I don't think people feel that way about normal political kitsch. 
Um, and, and so I think that the market appeals for that. And, and because we don't have these upfront costs, it's easier. If we were back in the world where you had to make your own stock and then find marketing possibilities and even do your own shipping, I think then that you put, you cut people out of the equation, right? Because very few individuals are going to want to go and print 10,000 copies of their own t-shirt and keep taking it to the post office. Because what if they don't sell? Like you, you're not going to make a ton of money. So the economies of scale that you can get out of using Amazon's site where you don't do any of that, I mean, yes, they take a big cut of the sale price, but you still only make money. Like you don't wind up losing money. And so for people who are just starting out or even younger people, I mean, this summer, for instance, my youngest son, who's 17 and, and not even legally old enough to create his own website and sell these things, desperately wanted to launch his own line of T-shirts. He thought this would be a really interesting side gig for him on top of his job at the grocery store. And he had something to say. Um, I don't think it had anything to do, it wasn't political because he has no interest in Putin kitsch. Um, but I thought that was really interesting that to him, he saw this as the first step in going into business one day for himself. And I suspect a lot of people see this or they see it as, you know, in the old days where, where say women would sell Tupperware and have Tupperware parties because they were staying home with their children. This can be the equivalent of that. A side gig, you devote as much time or as little time you want to it. You have a chance to make a little bit of money and you don't have a huge overhead, you know, and, and there's an attractiveness to that. Yeah, and it certainly connects to, you know, the, the idea of how we're all kind of neoliberal subjects here and little entrepreneurs in our in our daily existence. This is just one very clear manifestation of that. And the sites are surprisingly easy to use. You know, that's the other attractive thing. I mean, if they make it complicated where you have to have a lot of tech or, or you know, know what to do. And instead, of, if you go look at one of these programs, like even uploading something to Etsy, I mean, they make it as basic as they can because they know you're, most of these people are not, oh, I'm not going to offend anyone, are not computer geniuses. Well, let's talk, let's talk about some of the themes uh, that Putin kitsch uh, manifests itself in because while there's all of this, this creativeness uh, with Putin Kitsch and the production of it, there seems to be some pretty standard themes that Putin can represent. And one, of course, that's that's complete. You, and you've already mentioned it is that it's a very hyper masculine presentation, but also with that homophobia. Um, you know, how do you understand this 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 relationship between hyper masculinity and homophobia and this type of political satire? This is one that we all struggle with because it's, it's, it's actually quite complicated too, because it depends who you are when you read the image, um, as I'm constantly reminded about, you know, probably three years ago, um, one of my students marched into my office and told me I was wrong. And God, I've always loved that about him. He was like, no, no, you're reading the slash all wrong. And he said, I write slash and I know about this. And, you know, and, and, and he was right. Like I have, I've changed a lot of my thinking after our conversations, but every now and then I push back too. And I say, look, I'm not seeing that. And, um, it depends too on what kind of items we're talking about. I think the material objects give a different message sometimes than the written texts do the written texts because they're longer and there's more chance to really delve into pornographied imagery that, that I think that's making a slightly different statement. But I think that they're playing with it. And, and I've often read a lot of this stuff as what's the most 
uncomfortable thing we could do to a politician. Let's take what they espouse and humiliate them by making them hypocrites. So this can be making them naked or in a case of, for instance, a lot of the Trump-Putin stories, it's about ridiculing um, the size of Trump's anatomy. You know, I'm making it contrast with something that I always refer to as Trump's, as, uh, sorry, Putin's magic penis, where Putin's magic penis can do amazing things, um, whereas Trump's can't. And sort of this, this idea that's part of it. And, and they're using homophobic language, as an, and language and ideas to try to undermine people they think of as hypocritical. Now, I think if you are someone who is, is part of the LGB, LGBTQ community, even if you know that's the case, it's still hurtful because it still says that somehow homophobia is not, uh, sorry, homo homosexual acts in some in way or whatever sexual acts are not normal. You know, you're, you're casting a certain group of people as deviant, even if that's not necessarily your intention. And so there's an incredible tension there. You know, and one of the interesting things is watching sometimes how particular um items have a response from particular communities. So I'll give you an example that I mentioned very briefly in the book is Randy Rainbow's stuff. Randy Rainbow is fantastic. He, he does a lot of Trump-Putin commentary and, um, and his stuff is always incredibly well received by the LGBTQ community. Um, in part because he's very openly flamboyantly gay and and but he references often in the little parody songs that he makes he he posits that there is a homosexual relationship between Trump and Putin the people who respond to his videos and write reviews of them don't see that as homophobic and yet arguably he's not doing anything that's any different than one of the slash texts that someone else will read and say well if that's say written by a straight male then they're automatically being homophobic so I think sometimes it depends on the, on the reader. And I don't want to say that anyone's interpretation is wrong, because they're not. You know, that's one of the things about these texts. Like, none of them have a very precise meaning. You can read them in any number of ways. And I've been schooled this semester, trust me. Uh, we just finished a unit on the Slash stuff. And on day one, someone told me, oh, this isn't Slash. This is Crackfic. I was like, Crackfic? What is Crackfic? I've never heard about this and I've published a book and I didn't even know. And and later on I went and looked it up and I realized, oh yeah, actually you could have I could have called this crackfic. I could have written the entire chapter differently. What is that? Crackfic is um stories that you could only come up with if you were on crack. Oh, <laughs> of course. And that's what they call it in the in the fan fiction universe. <laughs> that's great. And and I was like, yeah, they're right. You know, some of these crazy stories that totally makes sense. I want to go back to something that you said earlier because this this your what you just laid out reminds me of it. And and that is, you know, you said that the satire and the and the the humor of this is really low stakes, um, and in a variety of ways. But it's also low political stakes, right? In the sense of you know it 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 functions in a in, as a carnivalesque, right? It's a safety valve. The and in many respects, the excess, you know, whether it be the hypermasculinity or the homophobia or the the extreme sexual acts that. Putin and Trump are engaging in and who's dominating who, this is kind of a, it's, I have this interpretation that it's an overflow of people's inability to express these type of excesses in personal life or in political life um, where our language 
is often tightly regulated and controlled. Like the discourse, the boundaries of acceptable discourse can sometimes be constrained. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think especially I'm seeing that when I look at um, Putin material created by conservatives. Um, it's very much about rejecting political correctness. And But on the left, what's interesting is they take a slightly different view. And here I'm going to quote I probably bastardized the quotation, John Stewart, who once said about his own satire, like they said to him, well, what are you trying to achieve? And he said, I'm trying to show that we can do better. And it, the more ridiculous we are with this, it's like saying, people, come on, have we really gotten to this point? Like, can't we hold people to a higher standard? And, and so I think that slightly different things are going on. But yes, absolutely. People want to be able to say certain things, and they're afraid to do it. And this gives them all kinds of different opportunities. I mean, again, to go back to those um, campaign signs I just mentioned earlier to you, one of them, the, the big slogan for um, November, well, we're on the eve of November, so this would have been October, lots and lots of things were saying, dump the turd on November 3rd. And you could find posters that showed, like you took a pile of dookie and put some yellow hair on it, and you could print that on your lawn sign. And then say, like, you know, have that slogan and it would say, vote Biden-Harris. Well, that's kind of a, if you stuck that out on your front lawn, like, no political candidate would ever actually sanction that. But that was really saying, like, I'm so sick of being polite about things that here you go. This is what I really think. And I do. I think what you, I, you said is right. I think that there's a way here that we can go into a more honest appraisal. And and the other thing about setting that bar low is you don't have to know a lot, right? I mean, there's not, um, it's not as if they're quoting a policy document. So there's no sign that says, you know, pursuant to article this of this part of document of this. No, I mean, it's all very, very simple. What's going through my mind is that an image where um, it's one of oral sex. Uh, and the joke is that Trump is Putin's private server, right? And of course, we all heard so much about Hillary Clinton's private email server that, you know, even if you didn't follow the news, you would know what that joke was about. You didn't have to be, in other words, a news aficionado to get the joke. And I think that matters because I think that sometimes when ordinary people decide to watch the news and the, the people who are on as experts are describing policy in very detailed analysis. Like, I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but they do it in such a way that people who are listening are like, I don't even understand what they're talking about here. Um, whereas the kitsch, because it's shorter and it appeals to this sort of baseline of humor and, and quite frankly, I mean, human beings often resort to sex and bodily functions um, in times of political upheaval. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. In fact, actually, I've recently found out some of the stuff I'm working on goes all the way back to um, the plays of Aristophanes, which, again, you know, most political scientists are not going that far back in their analyses. <laughs> yeah, so I, th I think there's something there. A lot, of, I mean, a lot of this, this stuff, you could find, you know, things similar to it, uh, you know, in, during the French Revolution, any kind of scatological humor, pornography, also the Russian Revolution. Uh, you know, you have all of this, the, the, the undermining of authority. It's, it's really about delegitimization of authority by, through this satire and through this, this turning of the tables. Exactly. It's, it's like you take something that's sacred and say, hey, 
especially individuals who've been held up to um, a higher ideal. And you say, hey, you know, at the end of the day, you go to the bathroom too. And, um, and it's really interesting because to me, when I think about all of this, I often think that the, many of the themes and ideas and even the jokes are kind of the same. What only changes about kitsch is the way that it's formed. So the format it ultimately takes. So now we have digital items and we have, um, you know, print on demand services that let you create things. If, if that had been available in 1900, we would have seen the same thing about the Romanovs before they were thrown out. And the same, you know, about the French monarchy in 1789. If people in France in 1789 could use Etsy and Cafe Press, they would have. You know, so kitsch, kitsch is always a product of its own time, but I think the larger ideas that it's expressing and the power it gives to the disenfranchised is still there. What, what, how, what, how do you see this stuff about Putin uh, and the satirical um, material about Putin in relationship to the Putin per- cult of personality in Russia? Because, you know, we already see this in, in Russia, you know, political opposition, there's a lot of lampooning of Putin already in Russia. But how do you connect it to the the general cult of personality? I think sometimes it spills over. I think that sometimes they're not even in dialogue with each other. And, and so many times what's going on in the United States is not informed by what's going on in Russia. But you do occasionally have moments where they get brought together. So the Sochi Olympics is an interesting moment where that, um, what they call the Russian gay, the Putin gay icon circulated, where many people in the West um, wanted to criticize the Putin government for its anti-LGBTQ um, LG, legislation that had passed the year before. And, and so they took that opportunity. And we saw sort of a melding of criticism between the Russian context and the American context. But often they operate in, in isolation. What, to, what I find fascinating is the spillover into former Soviet republics, um, into parts of Eastern Europe, you know, places that had lived under Soviet, not outright domination, but certainly had been part of, say, the Warsaw Pact and had had their lives, you know, affected by Soviet policies. We see Putin kitsch forming part of political discourse there too. You know, and I think that's really interesting, right? That there's there's a wider market for this. I think Putin feeds it. And um, I don't think he cares, to be honest. I actually don't think he knows about a lot of this. I think he, he has more of awareness of maybe the Russian side. And, and certainly if he goes into any public building and sees portraits of himself, he knows about that. But whether any of his handlers come in and say, well, you know, sir, this, this company over here just made a $3,000 chocolate of you. I don't think they tell him that. Right? Um, and I, I doubt very much that he spends any time on social media. I've gotten the impression like he has no interest in this. And yet at the same time, he's very conscious of his own image. I think that, I mean, you must have seen the photos too. It's clear the man has been using Botox. And so he's obviously vain um, and he likes to celebrate his physicality. So he doesn't mind kind of playing with the aspects of the cult that's created for him. But whether he's like actively directing it, no, I don't get any sense of that. It's it's very much in, in similar to what people what scholars have written about the Stalin cult, um, you know where where some of it he 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 is a manager of it, but a lot of it has its kind of life of its own. Though some, sometimes he will you know reject certain types of of portrayals of himself. Um, 
I want to. I want you to talk more about this self-published fan slash fiction, this porno- pornographic stories, uh, and and what what really uh, uh so what I didn't know, you know, the Trump stuff, um, I knew about because I even bought one of them. But, oh, <laughs> but, oh, I, but, I don't think I've ever met anyone who would admit oh, to yeah, that. Oh yeah, I, other than I me. oh I I'm totally yeah I'm I have I have no cultural um, sophistication. Uh, I but, used to but, worry so much when I crossed international <laughs> borders while traveling that someone was going to say, "Ma'am, we need to look at the contents of your Kindle." <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't know about the early 2008 stuff and the stuff with Hillary Clinton and Obama and and Sarah Palin and things like this. So talk a bit about like this whole genre of Putin kitsch. I think it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic in in the, the real meaning of the word fantastic. And I think it's just so cool that people got tired of listening to a certain kind of political narrative. And they said, no, I'm going to imagine this differently. Right. And they felt kind of empowered to do so. And, and it's clearly that this is happening in other places, too, because one of the stories I talk about in there is someone who's protesting the invasion of Ukraine and, and they're Bulgarian, apparently, because, again, sometimes it's hard to know and people don't always tell the truth. Um, and sort of this idea that, yes, we can go in and create different kinds of novels. I, I wonder, too, if it comes out of the tradition of like almost the conspiracy theory books. I've spent a lot of this lockdown reading Romanov young adult fiction (laughs) and um, some of the conspiracy books, like sort of what if this person had survived? What if this one had survived? What if all of it was a hoax? And or, you know, and and some of the stories are quite outlandish. Like what if one I have right now, Anastasia becomes a vampire and this kind of stuff. What is the purpose to those narratives and why does this stuff exist? And I think in a way that the things I was describing in this book are kind of an outlet of that, where we always have fiction that looks back at certain moments in history and certain figures and wants to reimagine what it was like to be part of that. Um, And it's a huge segment of the book market. If you think of how many books you have about popular, um, like say, take the romance genre, how many of them reimagine someone and, and their character is now at a particular court. And, and is engaged, you know, in some kind of relationship with royalty. And that's been selling for decades. And so this is, it already kind of existed in the background. And I think what happened now is that people just wanted to update it. So I don't necessarily want to write about Napoleon. I want to write about something more contemporary. And they realized, too, they could meld that with their own political beliefs. You know, like maybe I don't... And the technology is... And that and and the technology is there, and there it's aren't easy. any gatekeepers. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's the thing. Like when, whenever, I mean, you must know this from the one you read. Some of them are better than others, and a lot of the language can be quite playful. But I mean, grammar is a struggle. On uh, I read some where I was like, I have no idea what this sentence says, and um, hmm, and because they're self-published, there's there are spelling mistakes, and the pagination is off, and and all kinds of stuff that would never slip through. And I think much like the print-on-demand services, the people who write this know that no publisher would ever publish it. But this is their way of saying, I don't care. I don't need a publisher to validate my opinions. I can do it. And I think, too, that they like the speed with which you can produce items. 
that was one of the things that always surprised me. Like, as I, because I was reading the, the Putin slash as it was coming out during the election campaign. So like every week to two weeks, or if there was a big event sort of within 48 hours, I would go back and check what had been posted on Amazon because the new stories appeared within days, if sometimes within hours of a new moment on the campaign. And there is literally no way that regular publishing can keep up with that. People liked the immediacy. Uh, what is your favorite Putin kitsch and what does it mean to you? My favorite pieces have all been given to me. And um, because they symbolize deeper relationships for me. If they're given to me by students, and, and this can be sometimes students send me memes or or they make sure that I, I am aware of a tr an exchange on Twitter or something like that. What that says to me is the student likes my class and maybe me enough to want to give me this as a gift and and to share an idea with me. And, and they also feel that they can have a conversation with me. So I, I often take when people drop me lines about memes, um, I see that as a breakdown of the divide that often exists between professors and students, where students feel like they can't teach us anything. You know, and instead they say, oh, no, well, she's kind of open to that. And I could share this with her and we could talk about it. And so I love that. The most meaningful, tangible object came last Christmas. And, and I'm thinking more about it, I suppose, on the eve of Christmas this year, because I won't see my parents on Christmas this year. Last Christmas Day, um, I opened up a number of parcels from my mother. And it was amazing how much Putin kit she had given me. Um, even though my book was out, she, she bought me some new Putin kitchen. Later in the day, I came up and I said to her, oh, thank you. I, I love this. And she, one item in particular was a big T-shirt where Putin, referencing the Sons of Anarchy television show in the United States, was cast as sort of a biker. And uh, he was like wearing a motorcycle jacket. And it looked very much like you had taken an advertising picture for Sons of Anarchy and just put Putin in it. And I said to her, like, thanks, that was perfect. And she told me how she got it. And it turned out it was quite a long story. My parents had just come back from a three-week tour of the Balkans. And they were in a small village called Budva in, is it Macedonia or Montenegro? I'm going to be embarrassed if I get it wrong. Uh, one of the two. And so they were in this tiny little village. And my mom saw, as she put it, an old lady. Now, I would point out my mother was 80 at the time. So how old this woman had to be, I don't know. And she said, there was this old lady and she was making t-shirts. She goes, I went over and I saw this design. So I decided I had to have this made. And that's what I was bringing you back. And I said, okay. And then my father piped in and he goes, I know, she wouldn't let it go. We almost missed the bus. <laughs> the entire tour was delayed because your mother was determined she had to have this t-shirt. And what spoke to me about that was the, and, and again, this is going to sound really emotional and not very scholarly, the deep love that expressed that my mother has for me. That even though I'm researching something that sometimes she finds distasteful, um, my mom has read the whole book and her comment on the, the pornographied sections was, well, I've learned things I didn't think I needed to know. <laughs> she never once said, don't do this. She said, you follow what you have to, and you do the best book you can. And this is her way of saying, I support you no matter what you do in your career. And to, and to the extent that, you know, 
they were on a tour at some point on that day they had to take a donkey to get somewhere and she's carrying that t-shirt on her donkey um that was her way of saying i support you you know so this is what's really really interesting uh in thinking about this is that like you said earlier it really is this kitsch is a medium through which people form communities and relationships. And yeah. Putin is kind of just totally disembodied, right? He's just a figure. Oh, he's incidental yeah, almost. almost. He's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's just the, the connector to these relationships. So, you know, finally, and this is my last question then, in thinking about this Putin kitsch in America, what does it say to you about the United States? I think in some ways it says... Despite all our connectivity, we are still desperately lonely at times. And we want to connect to other humans. And we want to share our ideas. And we want to feel that our thoughts actually matter. I suspect there's a strong feeling amongst many Americans that the people who are in power could care less about them. And and don't really want to hear what they have to say. And that this is possibly the only way they have of being honest about what they want to say and to find others who they can communicate with. You know, one of, I go back to the communities that make real fan fiction, not the stuff that, that I deal with. The people who write real fan fiction do it often to reach out to people who are interested in the same kinds of things they are. I mean, and, and, and as one of my students put it, you know, she said, like, as a 12-year-old living in rural wherever, and nobody liked anything that I did, and at school, you know, no one's interested in this, it was her way of making a human interaction to get her through the day. Now, I'm not saying that Putin Kitsch is that deep, <laughs> but on some level, I think it plays into the same kinds of things. That basic need to be heard, to be noticed... And to feel part of something. You know, I'm going to go back to a different example of a piece of Putin kitchen, how meaningful it is. And that's the Trump-Putin cross-stitches that are reproduced in my book. And, and the way that these became gifts in my department um, in the six months after the 2016 election. And the, the women who shared that, from the production to gifting the final objects, and the day that the person who actually made it, because I can't cross-stitch, um, the day she gave it to me, I mean, I was teary because I knew what this meant. This was our friendship personified and the way that for, you know, the previous six months we had discussed Putin Kitsch, we had discussed leadership cults, we discussed all kinds of different subjects. And it was her way of saying, I want to be part of this project. And that's why, for instance, I was determined when people gave me things, as long as I could for copyright reasons, I made sure they became illustrations in the book. Because it was my way of saying, you guys are my community, you know? And, and I hope if you guys pick this up, you'll say, hey, that's the postcard I gave her. Um, and in the book, I didn't reproduce the garden gnome, for instance. Yes, I have a Putin garden gnome. But I recently did a blog post about it because I wanted to show that picture. And again, that was a gift. Someone, I talked enough about it, somebody gave me one. And, and it was, for him, it symbolized the fact I'd been his academic advisor for four years. And his path hadn't always been easy and we'd had to do an interesting workaround so he could do a study abroad. And, and it was, he was about to graduate and it was his way of saying, thank you for guiding me for four years. You know, and so to me, that's not a gnome. That's my relationship with this student. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's about finding your people. 
Yeah. And if your people have a weird sense of humor, all the better. That was Alison Raleigh. Alison Raleigh is a professor of Russian history at Concordia University. She's the author of Open Letters, Russian Popular Culture and the Picture Postcard, 1880-1922. Her most recent book is Putin Kitchen America, published by McGill Queen's University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage, and you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye!